Okay, going to continue the series of the journey to the cross. This is about Jesus being sentenced. Matthew chapter 27, beginning from verse 11. And I'm reading these words. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas! they shouted. Uh, well, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is now your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and then handed over to be crucified. Pilate was the governor of the region on behalf of the Roman Empire. He'd been uh, he'd been uninvolved until now, but the Jews need his help. They can't inflict the death penalty themselves. So hope Pilate will believe their claim that Jesus is worthy of death. As if. They don't want the claim investigated, just a legal stamp that Jesus can be put to death. The Jews know that talk about Jesus being a king would gain Pilate's attention. Because Caesar was king. And so any threat to Roman rule would be taken seriously. Jesus didn't deny the accusation of being king of the Jews because he was the king of the Jews. This probably pleased the Jewish officials since it guaranteed that Jesus would be further scrutinised by Pilate. Luke tells us that they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and that he himself is Christ, a king. That's chapter 23 of Luke verse 2. Jesus, of course, had not said anything of the sort. The Jewish leaders hurl accusations towards Jesus, who stays silent, like he did when accused in his religious trial. Reminds us of what we read from 800 years before, when Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, states about God's chosen one remaining silent. Pilate appears unnerved, and is kind of saying, well, aren't you going to stand up for yourself? Luke seems to suggest that Pilate doesn't really want to get involved. Upon learning that Jesus was a Galilean, well, Pilate had him take 
had him taken immediately to Herod because Herod had jurisdiction over Galilee. Avoidance of responsibility. Herod is glad to see Jesus. Great. But no, only because he wants to see a miracle. And very often today, people are maybe going to be conditioned as to whether or not they believe based on what this God does or doesn't do before their very eyes. He and his soldiers treat Jesus with contempt and mock him. Herod then sends him straight back to Pilate and the two, having previously been both enemies, become friends, Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 12. A bit like maybe the English and the Welsh football fans being abusive and violent towards each other. But suddenly when it came about to being the Olympics in 2012 and we entered a Team GB, well, English and Welsh football fans had to unite because they're English and Welsh footballers in the same team. We love to have an ally, don't we? We love to find somebody else that's going to support our point of view. Pilate sees a way out due to the annual custom of releasing a prisoner. So in giving the crowd a choice, he assumes they would rather choose Jesus to be uh, released as opposed to a murderer from verses 15 to 17 in Matthew 27. He's shocked to hear the opposite. Look what people choose instead of Jesus. Maybe today, when people have got an opportunity, as everybody has, to choose Jesus, they'll choose anything but. Pilate is is also thrown at this point when his wife, Claudia Procula, warns about getting involved with this innocent man, as she's had a dream and suffered as a result. So harm done to Jesus would be indeed an injustice. It was all she could do, but at least she did something. What about us? What do we do? If we have a particular concern or we feel something, I feel something like build up uh, within uh, a sense or an impression or maybe that God has said something to us. It's quite a dangerous thing to just keep that to ourselves. If you've got a sense that God is speaking to you, but you're not too sure what that means. That's where you ought to take that to the elders of the church. That's for the leaders to weigh. You've at least done your job like Pilate's wife did hers in passing that on for somebody else to make a judgment sometimes when god gives us things it may well be for the now it may well be to wait something that we're to put on the shelf and that will become uh, more relevant and real as time goes by Pilate is certainly afraid of the people but in asking them what he should do with jesus he abdicates complete responsibility we can feel that if someone else makes a decision well then it's got nothing to do with us it can be a right action through fear Uh, we avoid they all shouted out for jesus to be crucified they didn't vocalize any crime just crucify him crucify him and just rereading matthew 27 again getting to those words it kind of like stuck in my throat really as i felt a sense of real awkwardness about repeating what the crowd venomously cried out oh the injustice The repeated reason for the Jewish leader's hatred is given as envy. Well, envy can start small, can't it? But it can certainly lead to some unimaginable conduct. What about ourselves? Moreover, do we just go along with the crowd because of what somebody else says? Pilate has lost complete control and also he's lost the crowd's respect. He washes his hands of them and says, well, whatever happens now is their responsibility. Choosing to be a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. That's a dangerous game to play. 
he was guilty as he knew that Jesus was innocent. He demonstrates incredibly weak leadership. The crowd respond dangerously. Let his blood be upon us and our children. Ouch. There can be an impact on the generations that follow when there's such heinous crimes committed, especially where curses are employed. Historically, what followed amongst the Jews was anarchy and then the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Surely no coincidence. Finally, we have the ridiculous, sick and pitiful scene of the most guilty being set free and the most innocent sentenced to die. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, to be blind to our own sin. But many of us are. I know I have been. The crowd were blind to their own sin. What must Jesus have thought? What must his heavenly father have thought who knew the hearts of each one? If we take a look beneath the surface of these verses, I think there's an element of truth and that we find ourselves. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not wanting to get all heavy and judgmental and accusatory. But we are a bit like Barabbas. Why? Well, because we have committed offences before God and we deserve to be punished. Yet before a holy God, we are also able to walk away free. It's easy to get angry at Barabbas. After all, he shouldn't have escaped without punishment. But what about us? The wages of sin is death. Wages are what we deserve. Romans 6.23 But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus undeservingly took the place of Barabbas. And he did the very same for you and for me. There is a gospel tract called God's Simple Plan of Salvation. Well, is the plan of salvation really simple? Well, you'll know as being a part of Dorchester Community Church, every now and then we use a little ABC model, not to try and be simplistic, but to somehow try and package in just a sentence what might be three starting points to help people for where they're at. The A meaning there's something to admit. The B meaning there's something to believe. And the C, something to commit. We need to admit that we're sinners before God. We're not perfect. We need to believe that this Jesus who gave his life for us did us as punishment for our wrongdoing. And the C, that commitment is our own committing us to him. Making him Lord of our lives. Recognising what he's done for us. Jesus had made his way to Jerusalem knowing he would die there. He reclined with his disciples for a last meal, knowing that Judas would betray him. He entered the garden to pray, knowing that his three closest friends would not be able to stay awake to watch him. He stays calm as footsteps approach, knowing another of his apparent followers will betray him. He knows his enemies will mistreat and mock him. Jesus is aware of Peter's aggressive denials. He's questioned by the high priest, accused by liars and charged unlawfully by evil religious officials who only had one thing in mind. By now Judas, the betrayer, is dead. Peter is grieving. Jesus is alone with his enemies. And as time goes on, his suffering and humiliation increase. From this perspective, it hardly seems appropriate to refer to our salvation as simple. Yet... 
This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Our salvation did require incredible pain and sacrifice by Jesus. But we do easily understand what he has done, what was done and what it means to us. Over this Easter, may we come to that place afresh of being eternally grateful. I want to end by sharing a story with you. I believe the story is true. It's about a wealthy man and his son who loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Raphael. Don't ask me to tell you the difference, will you? They would often sit together and admire the great works of art. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous but sadly died in battle whilst rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and was understandably absolutely grief-stricken. Grieving days, weeks, months deeply for his only son. Just before Christmas, there was then a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, Sir, you don't know me, but I am the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart and he died instantly. He often talked about you and of your love for art. The young man held out his package. I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist at all. But I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package. It was a portrait of his son painted by the young man stood before him. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had somehow captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. Oh no, sir, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantelpiece. And there it hung. Month after month, every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works he had collected. Such was his love for his son. A few months later, the man, now elderly, sadly died. There was to be a great auction of his paintings. Many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their collection. On the platform sat also, amidst the famous paintings, the painting of his son. The auctioneer pounded his gravel, his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the sun. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. Then there was a couple of murmurings and almost a smirk from one side of the room. 
Then a voice at the back of the room shouted, We want to see the famous paintings! Skip this one! But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone please bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? A hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Then another voice shouted angrily, We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But the auctioneer continued, The sun, the sun. What have I bid for the sun? Who will take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the back of the room as a somewhat dishevelled man lifted his hand. It was the long-time gardener of the man and his son. Well, I'll give ten dollars for the painting. He was a pretty poor man. He felt it was all he could afford. We have ten dollars. Who will bid twenty dollars? said the auctioneer. Give it to him for ten dollars. Come on, let's see the masters. Move on. Ten dollars is the bid. Won't someone please bid twenty dollars? The crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. Going once, going twice, sold for ten dollars. The man came to collect the painting. A man sitting on the second row shouted, Now let's get on with the collection, can we? The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. What do you mean the auction is, auction is over? What about the paintings? I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. Well, I can guess you imagine that the uh, the gardener at that point probably passed out from the back. But listen, the point is this. God gave his son 2,000 years ago to die on a cruel cross. Much like the auctioneer, his message today for you and for me is the son, the son. Who will take the son? Because you see, whoever takes the sun gets everything realize that if you have jesus you have all you need both for this life and indeed for the life to come may god bless you as we approach this easter season and further reflect on the coming reason of this amazing son who gave of his life for the likes of you and for me. Amen.